Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series currently on NBC and based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Coletti. My co-host is Kate Kolzik, TV editor at soundonsight.org and writer at theavclub.com. And our very special guest this week is a member of the Hannibal writing crew for this season. Uh, most listeners will, of course, be familiar uh, with his work as the creator and writer of the Child's Play series. We're very happy to welcome Don Mancini to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. This week, we're going to be talking about uh, Season 3, Episode 10, and The Woman Clothed in Sun, written by Don and Brian Fuller and directed by Guillermo Navarro. Uh, And just quickly before we get into that, uh, as a reminder to listeners, if you'd like to get in contact with us here at the podcast, feel free to email us at thisisourdesign666 at gmail.com. Uh, you can also leave a post for this over at soundonsite.org when it goes up, or uh, send a tweet. Kate is at the Televerse, and I am at Sean Coletti. And with that, uh, just very quickly, here are your Hannibal by the Numbers for And the Woman Clothed in Sun. Uh, the episode features 299 lines across 14 speaking roles. Uh, Bedelia dominates that at 75 lines, and Hannibal and Will round out the top three at 42 and 40 lines apiece. The episode only has 16 scenes, which is actually the fewest uh, of any episode this season thus far, uh, the shortest of which is only 11 seconds, the longest of which I was kind of unsure. I counted the whole uh, therapy montage with Will and Bedelia and then uh, Neil and Bedelia as one, and that amounted to a whopping 9 minutes and 48 seconds. Of course, you could break that up, um, but that felt like one piece, and we'll be talking about that uh, in just a little bit. All so so interesting and illuminating, all of those statistics. <laughs> Because I had no idea about any of those specific, specific, specific statistics other than, you know, the sequence that you're referring to in Act 4 is a kind of a, a big thing to wrangle. Yeah, it was um, the first episode in this Red Dragon arc that featured Will going to uh, the Leeds house. And I think uh, up until that episode, that had been the longest scene in any uh, episode of Hannibal thus far. And then this one, if you consider it all one piece, then and actually I think that this one is the longest that we've been given in the series. So it's they're going for like much longer sequences, it feels like, in the back half of this season, which is interesting. Well, you know, this it's it's so interesting to hear and and to read about how people, fans, people are watching it and critics, how they have all perceived and reacted to the the separate halves of the season. And I from what I can tell, and we're only halfway through the Red Dragon stuff, but it seems to me that certainly for fans, they seem to be preferring the the Red Dragon stuff. Um, maybe the critics are too. I mean, they were they were pretty over the moon about the Italian stuff for the most part, although maybe not exclusively. But I think it's you know the Red Dragon stuff has the virtue of having that very traditional narrative motor uh, that harkens back to the first two seasons of the show where there it's it's slightly more traditionally procedural and they're you know hunting for a very specific killer and so all the action is kind of coordinated toward that end uh whereas you know the first half of the season it's it's so phantasmagorical and so impressionistic and expressionistic and um, and I and I actually kind of uh, love that aspect of it. Um, it was it was fun to work on because it's just it's it, it, there just were fewer rules in a way. So so bottom line, I think it makes sense 
the statistics that you're citing um, and that the and that you said about 310, this was news to me, that it had the fewest actual number of scenes. I think you said 16 um, of any of the episodes so far. And um, anyway, just kind of broadly, it makes sense to me that that would be the case. Yeah, and I definitely agree about that distinction. Uh, and that seems to be what most of the fans and critics are echoing. What's interesting to me about that discussion uh, is that while a lot of the fans are maybe have a close connection with this back half because it, it is the procedural uh, traditional structure that uh, kind of defined the first couple of seasons. When I think back, when we were starting to watch Hannibal when it first started to air, it seemed like most people were enjoying it and the critics were louding it because it was a more artistic version of that. And so it, it almost makes that not an issue, but like the two distinct um, groups of people who prefer this stuff rather than the phantasmic oracle that you were talking about, that that artistic vision, I think, was part of the reason why we all fell in love with the series in the first place. Right. Yeah, you know, as a writer, I think ultimately I probably enjoyed uh, the the first half more in a way. Again, just because it was it was a little more outside any box and and a bit crazier. Um, also, with the Red Dragon stuff, of course, it's well-trod uh, ground. I mean, we've we've seen we've seen huge aspects of this story in two previous feature versions, of course, and in, in the book itself. And um, it, it, you know, on one hand, it was it was thrilling and an honor to be you know kind of custodian in a way to to some of that stuff. I felt really lucky that. In the episode from last night that I, you know, I got to do a new version of the tiger scene and a new version of them making love and a new version of Dollar Hyde eating the painting because all of that, all of this stuff was was so iconic um, to the Thomas Harris canon. So it was really thrilling to be able to participate in the newest version of that. That said, I think as a writer. The, the stuff that I had the most fun with was the stuff with Bedelia and Will and Neil because it was new, you know. That, uh, and, and again, I should stress, Brian, of course, you know, be, this, this show, of course, as everyone knows, re- represents his very specific vision. Um, and he had a lot of parameters already set for this stuff. But because we hadn't read it in the book, Bedelia is a brand-new character, Neil is a brand-new character, and even Will Graham, in a way, I think Brian Fuller's reinvention of, of Will Graham is exactly that. It's, it's very much a reinvention. I think the character and certainly his relationship with Hannibal is is quite a new specific thing in the Brian Fuller universe. But um, anyway, I think that 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 was some of the the stuff that was was really fun to do was just to Bedelia is is such a, a fun character that Brian created. It's really interesting for me watching this Red Dragon arc because, as as the listeners will know, I've not read Red Dragon or seen any of the versions of it. The only Thomas Harris I'm familiar with at all is I watched Silence of the Lambs once. So for me, Uh I got to experience the tiger scene for the first time, and it just blew me away. And same thing with, with the... 
there the martinis and then the sex scene afterwards i thought it was just absolutely gorgeous and when you're talking about the different halves of the season i'm one of those people that when um when some people came out of the woodwork saying oh thank goodness we're back to the season one feel season two feel in the second half i was like qua but guys it's hannibal why don't we love i thought we loved all the artsy fartsy stuff that's why i'm here um so I, it was for me the the tiger scene and the sex scene that felt so in keeping with the first half of the season, just really ho- uh, honing in on what it feels like, you know, really expressing what it feels like for Reba and what it feels like for Dollarhide in these moments, tying into something that, like with uh, earlier in the season with Bedelia slipping into the bathtub and all these things that. Um, we got a lot more of the experiential or the uh, expressionist sort of approach in the first half of the season. So that's what I really particularly loved in this episode, though. I'm sure again, that's such a different approach to have writing something that you've seen so many other people take a crack at. Um, But from someone who's not, doesn't have those other things to compare to well done. It was lovely. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, I was thrilled with it too. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, beautiful. I mean, just the, the story that Thomas Harris was telling there, the dilemma of this character, Francis Dollarhide, and, and how Reba gives us um, a sort of peek into his fundamental humanity is, is really quite lovely. And, and it's, it's just, it's such a, it's so successful at um, making us care about about this horrible killer, and I think that that is, you know, one of the the real innovations of Thomas Harris's work um, to do that. And in in the episode last night, I mean, it's definitely as you've described, it's been it, for this new iteration, it's been Brian Fullerized, and he it was very important for him for us to experience this story in this specific new way and of course, and as as you alluded to Kate it she, it's getting inside these characters heads so in the scene with the tiger one of the things that was brand new that we hadn't seen in either of the versions before was specifically the light on the tiger's fur which is so stylized you know it seems so suffused by light as you know this kind of impressionistic notion of how this blind woman is experiencing this creature that she can't literally see but because her other senses are so honed that for us the the viewer we see this suggestion of how this feels to her emotionally and it's just so incredibly vivid and kind of turned up to 11 in a certain way. I loved that. And I loved when they're in bed, his vision of her as the woman clothed in sun. That was a new idea. And that was Brian's. Stunning. Um, And I think, and yeah, I agree. It's just absolutely beautiful. Just in keeping with the unique aesthetic of this show and the unique perspective and, and sort of stylistic and dramatic spin that Brian has put on this material and, and really made it new. You've pointed to uh, two scenes that I wanted to talk about in particular uh, and in conjunction with one another, and that's the tiger scene. And then also uh, while they're making love and dollar hide sees Reba as the woman clothed uh, with the sun. These are two moments in the episode where 
one of those two characters is crying and dollar hides crying as he's picturing Reba Reba's crying as she's uh, laying on top of the tiger. Um, we've talked before uh, on the podcast about how uh, loneliness functions in this series uh, and how Hannibal and Will's relationship seems to be defined by that need to not be alone. And it, it seems like that has something to do with these two moments as well. But, uh, Don, could you describe like why those two scenes are so powerful for those individual characters that it would elicit that kind of reaction? Well, I think that what you're speaking to is the fact that, like Will and Hannibal, Reba and Francis are loners. You know, these are two two people who are very much alone in the world, and then they discover one another and they see the possibility for connection. And um, and it's beautiful and thrilling, and I and and I think that's. I know that one of the things that was very important for Brian um, to accomplish with uh, this redux of the Red Dragon material was to filter it through a new his prism, and this prism of this redefined relationship between Hannibal and Will again, a, a very much an invention of Brian's. Um, this notion of these guys who are kind of two sides of the same coin, and you know, as a, as fans of the show, I'm sure you're, you know, you've you've read the different ways that people describe this, and it's like, are they in love? Do they want to do they want to fuck each other? What is going on? And um, I think, and I I think that fundamentally, it just comes down to that very primal human need for connection and here are two loners who find something in one another that makes them feel more complete and and thematically that is related to the Francis Reba story and so I thought that that was on, on Brian's part very a very elegant idea so that that's what to answer your question around about way I think that's why those scenes are so powerful um, not just because of the specific details, which of course are very powerful and beautiful, but because of how it resonates with the overall Hannibal and Will story and thence to the, just the overall theme of the show, or one of the themes of the show, which is um, a connection between two people and how that works and how it can be healthy, but also very unhealthy and codependent and abusive and sadistic and all, all of these things. Um, uh, you know, it also calls back to certain monster movie tropes. The It's, you know, a callback, I think, on Thomas Harris's part to Frankenstein, the notion of the, of the character who is literally blind and, um, but somehow can see through the, the superficial aspects of the monster to his beating heart, just like you know the little girl in Frankenstein. Um, so I think I think that was a a, a really uh, neat invention of Thomas Harris's, and and part of the reason why those that relationship is so interesting. Um, again, just two loners who find each other, and and now that we see that Francis is this horrible family killer, but how how ironic and awful that at only at this point in his life that he meets this person. It just makes you start to wonder, oh, if he had only met her a few years before, he'd have gone down a very different road. Um, 
anyway, that's what it makes me think about anyway. <laughs> I, I connect it in, especially in the way that the, the woman clothed with the sun moment is filmed. I really connect that in so much with the thread through the show of C of, of sight. And we talked about this last week, of course, when vision actually removes the possibility for people to see or be seen on this show and in general. And so to have Reba who is blind, but as the woman clothed the sun, she can, she can see him. She can, she's looking directly at camera, but I would say at Francis in that moment. Um, and, and I, th I also connect this to what the character said last week, where uh, sympathy is spit on my cheek, where she doesn't want anybody feeling sympathetic to towards her. And what we see from Francis this week is him feeling empathetic. And I think that's such an important right. distinction. And in that distinction, we have, you know, he's he's also likely one of the few people she's ever met who doesn't wish that she could see, who doesn't think she's missing out by being right. blind. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's this the irony, of course, that Francis needs for that person to be blind so they can't so that she can't see what he believes to be his own bodily monstrosity, but which of course is 99.9% in his mind. You know, it's as, as, you know, Hannibal has the line, I think it was in last week's episode to Will when he says, have you considered that this, this uh, shy boy is either disfigured or considers himself to be disfigured, which is a line from the book. Um, but it is, it, it is a very important detail that, um, you know, we look at Richard Armitage as Francis Dollhide, and we see, you know, this incredible-looking guy who has this, you know, scar over his mouth, which is no more disfiguring than the scar on, um, uh, what's his name, um, not Lee, wait, River Phoenix's brother, Joaquin Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix. You know, it's, if anything, it's it like you could look at it and think it's just kind of sexy. But for <laughs> for Francis, his entire life has been defined by that, by that scar and the speech impediment that goes with it. Uh, so he feels he needs someone who can't see that scar in order to to be comfortable around and. Um, yeah, so it just it leads to the empathy that you're talking about. But there's just something heartbreaking in a way that, it, that on the one hand, that it, it, he requires someone blind to do that. But on the other hand, it's, it's kind of perfect and beautiful because she sees, uh, the, she sees the, the boy in him, basically. She sees, she sees the human being inside. I thought it was so interesting to juxtapose the the call with Hannibal at the beginning of the episode where he just Dollarhide so wants to show Hannibal the dragon that's how he he wants what he wants to show Hannibal and we see that right. like just ridiculous in the most uh fantastic and fantastical way that 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 image but then with Reba he's he instead of feeling like he needs to show her something, he's being seen by her. And so that, that contrast, I think, is so interesting. I don't know how much of that is me overanalyzing things like I love to do, but is, was that part of the through line for those two, for you absolutely. guys? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely correct. And that, um, 
you know, one of the new things about the show was um, having Hannibal and and Francis actually have dialogue together in in neither the the book nor either of the feature versions does that happen but because of the stylized nature of the universe that Brian created out of this it it opened up you know an opportunities to get into that story in a new way um in the book and in the previous movie versions Francis contacts Hannibal via the mail um but it was very important to Brian to reinvent it in a much more visual and cinematic way. So hence we get the um, the phone call via uh, something. We we had to do a little research about it in order to make it plausible. But uh, and this was all new. I didn't know anything about this until we were working on the script. But there's actually a a site called uh, Call Spoofing, which is a, and it's a you know, some kind of legal safe version of that that you saw on the show last night, a website that, that Dollarhide links into so that he can phone the Baltimore State Hospital for the criminally insane. And at that end, they believe, they see that they're receiving a phone call from Byron Metcalf, Hannibal Lecter's lawyer. Um, anyway, there, were, there was just a little bit of heavy lifting involved there to just to figure out how to make that work but once we found that way in then you could justify via the rules that brian created for the show that in francis's imagination he imagines himself as a patient of lectors and he's sitting there in the iconic chairs opposite each other in the, the iconic office um which uh, which I loved because uh, I thought that lent uh, a really neat kind of gothic uh, feel to it. The I just it just seemed right for that character that he would want to do that inside Hannibal's now closed and somewhat decrepit and dusty office. Um, it just, just seemed right for the for the story. What putting Francis in that position does for me is it. It further develops the comparison that I think these episodes are doing between Francis and Will. You call the the Reba and Francis relationship a reinvention of Will and Hannibal, and I and I definitely agree with that. And I see that that Will and Francis are the parallels, which means uh, by default that Hannibal and Reba are the parallels. And this episode, I think, presents a really good case for that in the way that. It shows, as Reba's making the martinis, the elegance, the way that that shot is very similar to how we've seen Hannibal prepare meals and stuff like that in the past. The way that she uh, speaks to to Francis is not unlike a therapist, somebody who can see through him in the same way that Hannibal can see through Will and bring out what's really there. And it's also her strength, I think, that um, parallels Hannibal's as well. Uh, I was wondering if, if you think that those two characters share more similarities than we would initially think, given that it would make more sense for Francis to be the Hannibal parallel because he's the serial killer of the two. Yeah, honestly, it's not something that had ever occurred to me, but hearing you articulate it, I, I, that sound, that's really exciting. Um, and I think you're absolutely onto something. Yeah, I mean, she does, she does kind of psychoanalyze him 
you know, when she when she's talking to him when they're drinking the martinis, and and that's also a really great observation that about just the elegance of those glasses and and the way she makes them and with such precision. And of course, that was all shot by Brian's um, a special unit that does all of throughout the entire series and all the episodes. They shoot all of those extreme close-ups. They're basically like you know, commercials, you know, whether, whatever it is we're seeing, in that case, it was a commercial for, for vermouth or, or the, or the glasses or whatever. Um, but yes, that it, that you're right. It is a very Hannibal thing to do, to do something with such elegance and precision. And then when she's talking to him and saying, this is, this is how I see you would, you're you're not you're you're sensitive about these certain things, but you needn't be. Let me tell you what I think of you. I think that's really interesting. Um, I can't speak for Brian, but it's not something that ever occurred to me. And you you know Francis wasn't the one putting on WC. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that wasn't going to be him. Um, actually, actually, it is. It is actually. That's yeah, and that's straight. It's straight out of the book. Yeah, that huh. he's a, a fan of of both arabesques, and that's a detail that's in the book. And when when Reba says to him um, in in the show, I think she just like said, "You're full of surprises with the tiger and this house. I don't think anyone knows you at all." In the book, she also references Debussy as as a detail that she wouldn't have expected coming from him. Um, so actually, yeah, it's, that, that is part of his character. Full of surprises. Well, never mind then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we talked a little bit about the, the tiger scene. I wanted to just reference it once more because it, like it being an, uh, a moment of two in which somebody cries, it's also a moment of two when uh, Dollarhide uh, seems to have this really involuntary reaction um, to something powerful that he's witnessing. Uh, where he just brings his hand up to his mouth and, of course, covers yeah, it. Yeah, it's so, it's so powerful, isn't it? Yeah, and um, the other moment is when he hears Hannibal's voice over the phone for the first time, that these are the two moments when he really clutches up uh, into himself. Let Go me ahead. ask, John, how do you read that? In the scene with the tiger, specifically when when Francis brings his hand quickly to his mouth like that, how, what is your reading of what he's playing there? I think there's several emotions going on all at once, and I wonder if fear is the most powerful one, <clears throat> um, because it feels like, at least in that sequence, that there's a certain vulnerability that he recognizes in himself, that he's um, brought this woman here for this kind of experience and has really opened himself up to her. And now that she's having incredibly powerful experiences because of him. He recognizes how important he is to her. And now what it leads to is that he is still haunted by the red dragon, as we see in this episode. But when he sees her while they're having sex, instead of that being the the image that is right in front of him, it's the woman who in the the paintings that he sympathizes or empathizes with. Of course, the, the dragon haunts him in his nightmares afterwards. But I think that, that's what that clutching up at the tiger sequence leads to is that now he's recognizing that, uh, that he's not who he's worried that he's become, if that makes sense. Right. 
Um, yeah, that, I, I, that's completely valid reading, and I, I think that you're right. Certainly, when you say that there's a lot going on there, I, 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 when I first saw the dailies of that, I was so thrilled to see how he was playing it because, you, know, you there, there, as you'd probably expect, I mean, neither Brian nor I wrote specifically. He brings his hand to his mouth at that point. That was that was a specific gesture that he did, and and yes, it is similar to. Uh, something that he does, we've seen him do throughout the last few episodes, he ha- he's in the habit of covering his mouth because of his self-consciousness about what he perceives as his disfigurement. Um, it's interesting that, like, in, in the movie Manhunter especially, Tom Noonan played that... M- it, it was great. I thought it was powerful and interesting, but he played it much more just kind of like that he's erotically turned on and Richard brought, I think that that's certainly there, but B- Richard has this something else going on there. What you're describing as what you perceive as his fear, and I can see that. I also, what, what, what to me, it looks like it's also, there's something childlike about it. And, and, and I think that that is something that Richard Armitage has really done well with, and I know it was important to Brian, was just to see the, the lonely little boy that, that is this, was this man and is still this man in, in his core. And I, and I feel like with that specific gesture, that's the way I perceive it, that there's something childlike about it. Yes, there's fear, but I think he's also just thrilled at what you were describing, Sean, about how how important he is, that, that he's having this impact on this person and the connection with the person, and he's never experienced this before in his life, and, and it's overwhelming to him. And I think that his go-to gesture when he's overwhelmed is to cover the part of himself that he feels is ugly. Um, Anyway, I, it's, I'm so glad that you, you liked that specific gesture, because I did too. It's, just, it's interesting to hear people's different articulations of what's going on there, because it's just, it's so rich, you know? Well, and also, for me, it's, he's, there's, a, I also feel like there's a little bit of um, audience surrogacy there, where he's, <clears throat> part of him also has to be thinking, like I'm sure a chunk of the audience was, just like thinking to himself, the tiger's not going to wake up. The tiger's not going to wake up. <laughs> the tiger's not going to wake up and bite her hand <laughs> off. Um, but it's also, for me, she, she's exploring this tiger. It's such a, a powerful moment and experience for her. She's never had, I'm, I, I feel safe saying, she's probably never had any experience like this before, and she likely will never have an experience like this again. It's such a rare thing to be able to give someone. And she's exploring the animal and getting a sense of of it, and she reaches down for its mouth, for its teeth, to find its face, and she's finding beauty even in in the jaws of this deadly right. creature, in this monster. And what you know, not, obviously, it's a beautiful animal, but you know, giant bitey bitey teeth. And so she can find beauty even in something that kills and that causes you know if it's gonna hunt it's gonna you know kill and and take life and she she still she wants to reach for that deadly part of of the animal and 
and is curious and find she doesn't back away from that. And so when he sees that part of himself, I think there's part of him that also is so overwhelmed, like fearful for her, but also overwhelmed that she would find the same beauty in, in that part of the animal that maybe she could not be terrified of this more dangerous part of himself, even when he has the dragon more chained up. Right. Oh, absolutely. That's absolutely accurate. You know, there's a, a line in the book, Red Dragon, where um, it, it's not a line of dialogue, but Francis musing to himself that he would like to share with Reba in a way, he would like to share the dragon part of himself with Reba in a way she could survive. And, um, and, I, and so I think that the, the tiger is like a dress rehearsal for that. You know, and that's sort of similar to what you're you were just describing. That it's um, she 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 gets that close to the danger. You know, she's touching the source of of the way that this creature kills, and it's analogous to the way he kills because he's a biter as well, as you say. Um, but she can survive it. He's contrived this way that she can she can touch the beauty of it and survive, and that he wants to be able to do that with her, with himself as well. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of a dress rehearsal almost for the next sequence when they, um, you know, when she when they when they sit down on the couch together and she lays her head in his lap, and it, it's it's deliberately evocative of her posture with with the tiger of course and um i actually find the scene to me it's so sexy i'm shocked that it was it was on nbc in a way that and 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 there there were i know that the the censors um at the network they did send up a couple of alarms about it um <laughs> but brian blessem managed to to fight it and got got it through, but this I think that the specific objection was like it's after the shot where he drops the martini glass and it shatters in slow motion, and then we cut up to him, you know, and we can see that he is experiencing a, a, a sexual pleasure, and the network was a little concerned that it looked a little too specifically orgasmic, <laughs> that we would that like the viewer might clock that too specifically, but um. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm glad it made it. But, but giant kaleidoscopic lesbian sex scene, totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Any violence. That's okay. That's okay. It's, um, anyway. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's a great scene. And I just, and I think those two actors are, are really great together too. They, they really do have wonderful chemistry. I think, I think also Rutina Wesley, she, um, I had I was familiar with her work on True Blood, but but not not anything else. And it was so interesting and great to see her play such a different character. Because I don't know if you guys watch True Blood. Probably you did. If you watch Hannibal, then you'll know that she you know she played played a badass on that show. And here she's playing someone who's very strong and sure of herself, but but. You know, it's it's important to the story that she have a certain vulnerability and that we can really fear for her safety. Um, and I think I think it totally works with the two of them. 
the tiger scene also, I think, has parallels elsewhere in the episode. Just hearing you both talk about it, it, it's really fascinating how a lot of things are working all at once here. And what I was thinking about right now was what Bedelia says to Will in their scene together about the instinct, um, you know, seeing a wounded bird on the street. The first impulse is to recognize that it's vulnerable. And then, of course, they talk about the two differences that they have there. I think also in that tiger scene, what we're seeing is that in work, too, where Reba and Dollarhide are seeing a vulnerable animal there. And Reba's impulse is to cradle it. She reaches for the part of it that's wounded as if to help it subconsciously. And I think just to refer back to how we were talking about what's going through Francis's mind as he's clutching up there, it could also be trying to suppress that impulse that he might share with Bedelia, which is to destroy the thing rather than to help it. You mean that that Francis might share with Bedelia if he were to speak with her? Yeah, I think he would. Yeah, oh, oh, absolutely, that's true, because, you know, there's another detail about that image, that his seeing her as the woman clothed in sun, if you're, you know, familiar with the paintings, um, that woman becomes enveloped violently by the dragon. So there is, you know, in that image, by seeing her specifically as the woman from those paintings, there is the implication of potential danger for her, even though it is at that moment an, an image of great beauty. Um, yes, it's also a reminder that she could be sacrificed at the dragon's altar. Uh, you mentioned earlier that it was a lot of fun writing for Bedelia because it is a new character, and that's definitely a huge part of this episode, uh, of course, and the whole backstory uh, with Neil. Um, what, what do you think is important about kind of filling that in now and how that works for this episode? Well, I think um, it was specifically what you were just alluding to um, because of the dialogue that you referenced where she talks about the, the the bird and one what is one's impulse uh, upon seeing the vulnerable bird. Um, I think that is a, a new... Uh, we're, we're seeing a new aspect of Bedelia's character click into place there in that scene. And it was really important to us that that happened there so that we could justify the scene in that way. Um, you know, when throughout this entire season, we're, we're wondering, as, as the season progressed to what degree is she in control of her actions? She herself even articulates that to Hannibal. And I think later we, we realize that in a way she's kind of faking him out by even saying that. She's been in control all along. Um, and I think that the dialogue with Will about the, the bird crushing speaks to that, that she finally admits to, to, to the viewer what was really going on with her and her interest in Hannibal. And she, and, and then we get to see that visualized and dramatized through the, the um, flashback to Neil Frank. And right in front of her, he becomes a wounded bird. And she, as she says, or she's frantically trying to help him, I want to clear your airway because he's clearly bitten his tongue and blood is gushing and she reaches in and then she cannot resist the impulse anymore to kill it. And, and so I think, I think that 
to me, and I believe to Brian as well, that was the main importance of that, was that we, we, it's the final detail of who she has, of what the game that she's been playing, the long game throughout the entire series, really, what has been going on with her, is that she's really been in quite absolute control of all of her actions, and she... Uh, she's capable of this violence and, and just kind of wanted to observe it up close and experience this part of herself. Um, anyway, so I, and I think, I think it's, it's interesting also in that scene with the two of them, which is just an interesting new relationship. The whole idea of, of Will getting on Bedelia's couch, it, it, it was just, it's such an interesting presents such an interesting set of new opportunities, and as the sequence unfolds, you start to wonder who's being who's the analyzer and who's being analyzed, because what we're talking about here is that she's being slightly confessional, not even slightly. She's being blatantly confessional to Will, you know that like I, if you see a bird, it, basically she's saying this is the difference between you and me. And as she says to him, you you have righteous compassion, and that allow you you might be able to com- commit violent acts, but it's because of your righteous compassion. I, on the other hand, my first impulse is to crush. And, um, uh, that, and that is my relationship to Hannibal, which, and ultimately because she's more like Hannibal than Will is, she was able to survive him. And she's like telling him, but you're not that. And you're, the fact that you're so irresistibly attracted to this part of yourself is only going to end badly for you. So I, 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 it's, all of that stuff was just so much fun to dig into. It also adds a fun level to her exasperation with Hannibal as he's mooning over Will. She's like, oh, God, he's not that much like you. It's just, oh my goodness. Come on, dude. You're going to get yourself caught, uh, which has always been such a fun note for them to play, specifically um, in Italy, but uh, in a couple of those, uh, like uh, Primavera, no, Secondo, um, um, and, you know, from there on. But uh, also, even just before that, in the previous uh, sessions before he's found out by, by Jack and everyone. Um, yeah, it's when you have that stronger connection with Bedelia and Hannibal, that allows for. for perhaps more fun with, with uh, those scenes and rewatching maybe and, and having a clearer sense of their dynamic. And uh, it was just so fun to watch Gillian Anderson play yet another variety of this character. Her speech patterns right. back down like they had been um, more in season two because she was speaking a bit freer uh, more. She wasn't choosing her words or parsing her words as, as specifically, or at least as slowly <laughs> uh, in Italy. Right, right. But she was now back to that more deliberate yeah, pace. Ab- yeah, that's ab- you're absolutely right about that. And that, and that was a, a deliberate decision on her part to, to play it that way. Um, I think another, another thing that goes on, is going on in the scenes between Bedelia and Will in those scenes from last night that was really fun is just the subtext of they're, they're, you know, they're both they're kind of like fighting over Hannibal in a way. Like who who's more special me or you you know and she and she kind of like 
she she enjoys baiting him when she says, "Well, we're both we were both his bride," and she says, "My my relationship with him wasn't as passionate as yours." Does your wife know how intimate you are? I mean, it's just the 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 homoerotic subtext becomes teased out a little more aggressively via those scenes, which I thought was a really a really fun way to play it. They're almost like they're they're both discussing their ex. You know, and well, I meant this to him, and I meant this to him, and this is what's going to happen. That speaks to, I think, the the power and influence of Hannibal Lecter, which we view from uh, an outsider looking in on it, and so we might not think that it, it's as powerful and as far-reaching as it actually is. But two characters as strong-willed as Will Graham and Bedelia would be affected so much that the attention that they got, you know, over a relatively short period of time, they're not known Hannibal Lecter their whole lives, but it's caused them to feel that strongly and to have that kind of competition. It, it makes sense, like, that Will would seek somebody like her out. And I know as uh, as viewers of the series, it's we, we're always looking for reasons for Julian Anderson to come back onto the show. Right. But as podcasters and reviewers, you kind of have to think about what's the purpose behind this. And it makes total sense, and I don't think it's contrived at all, for Will at this point to need somebody like Bedelia, who is a survivor of Hannibal Lecter, and to kind of talk some of that stuff out. Because we've not really seen him do the coping during those three years. Right. Yeah, that it, absolutely. That was our thinking, is that this, the, the, these two people have have something in common that they haven't shared with one another and and that would and we just knew instinctively that that was going to be fodder for new material um also another thing i wanted to say i don't know if if you were looking at any of the tweeting from last night or if you look at it at all um but where where specifically we got the um uh the metaphor about the the, bird, the wounded bird and and whether to crush it or nurture it, it actually came from an interview with Jodie Foster. Um, it's a, and it's like a twenty year old interview or something that I just remembered reading, um, where she I, I, and I don't really remember the context of why she brought this up, but she she literally said in the interview that she detests weakness so much that if she's walking down the street and she saw a wounded bird on the sidewalk, her impulse would be to, to stomp it, is the verb she used, is to stomp it. And, and so that's what got us, we, we realized, oh, that, that is the final piece of the puzzle here for, for her character and what her long game has been and now how she, what she can share with Will. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, "Damn, Jody." Anyway, it's just funny that it happened to be Jodie Foster. I mean, because in a way, <laughs> that was completely coincidental. Yeah, I also really enjoyed the opening or scene or the the other scene we get got with uh, Bedelia and Will. I, it was such a fun parallel to Hannibal and Will's different lectures over the series to see her in that position. Oh, when, with she, the... put, when she puts his when she puts her hand on his shoulder, just like Hannibal had done with with her in 301 when he's lecturing about Dante and it's funny in her lecture right at the moment when she puts his, her hand on his shoulder that's when she brings up Dante yeah there's a fun devil in the details for our listeners um but uh you know that... you guys are like you guys are such the perfect audience for it because you catch all of these details it's great <laughs> that's actually one of our recurring segments where we 
talk about the devil in the details. So there we go. Um, but no, it just, it's so fun to watch her. She's so in her element. And th- I think that also gives us, le- leads in very well to the scene we get with her later, where you're seeing what, what did she have to benefit from what she put herself through with Hannibal or, you know, and again, we can get into how much of a choice there was in her leaving. Um, if she hadn't wanted to leave, I don't know that Hannibal would have given her a choice, but, um, but when we get to see her sort of, I feel like almost like she's crowing to this. She's feeding them this line about being a captive and all of this stuff, but she's, she's the cat who ate the canary in that scene. Absolutely. See. Yeah. All right, I I gotta ask a question, Don, because we've talked about this several times on the podcast, and uh, since you're on the writing crew, you are most equipped to answer this. There's this idiosyncrasy, idiosyncrasy to the writing on Hannibal that I'm not sure if it's the whole writing staff, or if it's just Fuller, or if it's a part of Harris that Fuller kind of took in, but there are moments throughout Hannibal, and I can't say that it's in every single episode of the show, but um, it, it's at least every oh, other, I would say. It's gotta be. It's like almost <laughs> every episode. Yeah. Okay. It, what, what characters do when they speak and, and what the writing um, has there on, on paper, I assume, is that characters are leaving out pronouns or subjects in the beginning of sentences. <laughs> so, it, like, in this episode, Will says, you dared to care, and Bedelia responds, not the first time I've lost professional objectivity, instead of, it is not the first time. What's going on there? Um... I would have to say that that is probably just a fetish of Brian's that you're that you're picking up on, I, and I, I and honestly I don't know that I would have even after having been a fan of the show and now a writer on the show that I would have perceived the details in the way that you just articulated in in quite such detail, um, but. Yeah, I th- you know, because every, everything that we write then gets filtered through Brian, and he's, you know, doing a kind of, he, I th- you know, he, I, as he would say, I mean, he's, he is trying to filter Thomas Harris's voice, and if you've, I know, Kate, that you said you haven't read the books, um, Sean, I, I'm not sure if you have, I get the feeling you probably have, Um you know, they're, they're, it's not 180 degrees away from Thomas Harris. You see a lot of, uh, the, I mean, the way, the way I think of it is just that there, there is just, a, it's intensely philosophical and verbose in a way that is unusual for television. Um, but as a writer, it's just, it's such catnip to get into. But um, the specificity of what you're talking about, about subjects being emitted, um, I, 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 since I wasn't aware personally of doing that specific thing, I'd have to say it's Brian. <laughs> well, now you won't be able to not notice it. So you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's, it's, it's not jarring. You just pick up on it easily. Yeah, I think what I've taken away from it is that it's strange because Hannibal's a very like pared down series in the sense that there's no excess fat. But at the same time, it's incredibly verbose and eloquent. And it's just weird to have those two things in combination with one another. And I think something yeah. as small as omitting a subject here or there is contributing to that. Do you have a, a, on, at your fingertips any other examples of that? 
Uh, from this episode, this was the only one that I wrote down, but I have my notebook from previous episodes. And, oh, it's, uh, just, it's just really, it's a really interesting observation. Yeah, well, um, I guess I'll, I'll go back and look through this right now if you guys want to get onto a different uh, topic for this episode. Oh, sure. Well, before we run out of time here, uh, we got to talk a little bit at least about that last sequence of the episode uh, because it was viscerally upsetting to me to watch uh, Dollar Hyde eat the painting. I was just like, <laughs> no, but that's the that's the only one. That's the real one. It was like it was, <laughs> it was so upsetting. And I'm curious how how much of that when you're writing a sequence like that, that is so it's not about dialogue. It's about performance. How much uh, as a writer, are you writing like he strokes the page or are you writing he eats it and then leaving that to the actor? What's the balance there? Oh no! It, you want to? You definitely try to evoke what's in his head to the whatever extent you're able. I mean, I don't have my script in front of me, but um, I do. I do seem to recall certain verbs and adjectives where you know he's, he's stuffing it into his face, net teeth gnashing, um, you, you know, animalistic, uh, you know. And it, you know, and it's also of, of deliberately evocative of it's not just a dragon, but it's the tiger as well. You know, I mean, there there, there is so there's so much teeth imagery in um, the having to do with dollar hide and 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 then manifest in this episode with with the tiger. Um, so it's almost like it's a setup of a promise to the viewer that that we get that finally gets paid off in that scene. Someone, someone or something has to get devoured and eaten because that's such a you know, and then that is a um, a theme and a metaphor that is threaded throughout the episode and, and is first articulated by Bedelia during her lecture when she says that it was with Dante that we first, you know, heard of the notion of being devoured, uh, devoured. And it, she, she invokes the, the mouth of, of hell rather than the gates to hell and being devoured. And so then with, and we know, of course, that's what Dollar Hyde does with his victims. He bites and then when he takes Reba to the tiger, that, of course, as we've discussed, is the, the, the mechanism for suspense in the scene is like, oh, my God, she has her hand right by a tiger's mouth. He could bite her and eat her. So that's the ultimate payoff to all of that. And it's just kind of fun that it's, it's a painting. But anyway, that's, that's how we tried to write it as, as the final payoff. The, the monster had to eat something big in this episode. And, and it's, it's just so interesting that it turns out to be, he's almost trying to eat himself. You know, he's trying to control that part of himself so that he can be a human being rather than a monster. Well, and what's again, not having read the books and I, please don't tell me, I don't want to know what happens to Reba so that I can tell myself that everything works out swell for her, even <laughs> though I know that that's, you know, for as long as possible. Um, he, Eats, he's consuming the dragon and making it one with himself, theoretically. And he is stopped before, in that painting, in that specific painting in the series of The Great Red Dragon, the woman is at the very bottom, and he's 
stopped, interrupted by Will before he gets to the very bottom, before he gets to consuming the woman. And so that's another fun devil in the details. If I want to read it that way, which for now, because it makes me feel better, I do. <laughs> and then another, of course, tie in that you mentioned the scene with Bedelia talking about the mouth of hell. We also have the giant Hieronymus Bosch mouth Bosch, right. behind her at the same time. So lots of fun biting and eating. And you know, even if, um, Kate, if, even if you did read the book, you wouldn't necessarily know what was going to happen to Reba since sometimes we change things. <laughs> um, yeah. Which I, you know, as a fan of the show for the first two years before I worked on it, I mean, that was, and, and a huge fan of the, of the books and the, the mythology, one of the things I loved about what Brian was doing with the show was how he would subvert the expectations of fans. And if you're familiar with the mythology, you think you know what's coming, and suddenly you get thrown these curves. And um, that it, it was really fun to participate in that in, um, in a mythology that I was such a fan of myself. It, it, and it was also I, it, something I have a certain experience with because I've done, just in my work with, with Chucky, I've done a lot of sequels, obviously, and sequels are all about kind of subverting people's expectations. And, you know, you're sort of like, your, your challenge is to give the, the viewer something. They, you, they think they want something, and you, want, you need to give them, you need to satisfy their expectation, but in a new way. So I think that, that that is something that I have a certain amount of experience with uh, as the creator of that franchise and the custodian of that franchise. So it was fun to sort of apply that particular skill set to this other mythology, which is so wonderful. Yeah, that was going to be one of the questions I wanted to ask was uh, who approached who about coming on for the writing this season and, you know, what other aspects of your writing did you feel confident about in terms of, yeah, I could really do Hannibal because of this or this? I, um, I was such a fan of the show that I did something um, that I'd never done before and was kind of against my own better judgment in a way and, and certainly the way I just, I, as I said, I never did it before. I just wrote Brian a letter. Um, I was encouraged to do so by a, a friend of mine who lives in Toronto and works on the show as a, um, a co-producer. His name is Michael Kessler and had been on the show since day one. I've known him for a few years and he knew I was a huge fan of the show. And we were, for the first two seasons, in the habit of either by phone or via email, we would discuss every episode as they would go on. I would say, oh, I love this, and oh, my God, are you guys bringing in Mason and Margot Verger? I can't wait. That's so great. So finally, last at, toward the end of season two or mid-season two, he just, like, I was talking to him on the phone. He said, Don, you should be writing on this show. And I said, oh, yeah, well, that would be great, wouldn't it, whatever. And he said, well, you should, you should talk to Brian. And I said, well, I don't know Brian. He said, well, just write him. What have you got to lose? And I went, I don't know. It just seems kind of pushy. But he convinced me to do it. So I, ba I basically, I had, we didn't know each other beforehand, although we did follow each other on Twitter. And I think we both, you know, vaguely knew that we were fans of each other's work. And so I, I just wrote him a letter and told him how much I loved the show and that I was, kind of a, um, a Thomas Harris geek 
to the extent that in certain walks of my life that it was it could be seen as a little goofy or embarrassing, but that could actually be of some help to him. Um, so I sent it off and didn't necessarily expect to hear anything because this being Hollywood, that's usually what happens. But happily, he he uh, sent me back a note and said, let's get together and talk. And, and that's how it happened. Um, and it was, it was, I, honestly, it was literally one of the most exciting experiences of my professional life because I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say that as, Lord of the Rings or Star Wars is to some people, the Hannibal Lecter universe was to me. I'm that big a fan and a geek of it. So it was, I I had not worked in television much at all. I had written a a million years ago a Tales from the Crypt episode for HBO, but that was just a one-off. And I'd sold a couple of pilots, but I'd never had the experience of being in the writer's room and being on a show as it was being produced. So all of that was was completely new to me and um and I loved it and I and I think honestly I think I was kind of spoiled because I was it, it was kind of like the dream a dream gig for me to get to work on it going going into the writers room every day it didn't feel like work to me because it's like oh my god we just get to talk about Hannibal all day I would do that anyway so to actually get paid for it, it was a dream come true, and it, it was it was so much fun and such a blast. I I mean the other part of your question, what what you know special uh, I can't write the word you use talent or 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 something that I I could bring to it. I mean beyond the obvious, obviously I'm a horror guy. I'm I I I, I write horror. I love horror. I'm a consumer of horror. So I think that you know Brian thought that um you know and he that's something he does with the show a lot he he brings in all, neil marshall to direct directed 308 this year um guillermo navarro certainly uh, as both a director and a cinematographer has, has his horror bona fides um i think also um i was a benefit to the extent that i was gay and that I, I, I really that that aspect of the show really resonated with me. The what what the fanables might call the the bromance between those two characters. Um, I love that, and every other gay guy I know loves that too. And um, I like to think that maybe that was helpful. <laughs> I, I can't say that it was specifically, but I like to think it was because I know that 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 was an aspect that is an aspect of the show that um, I find fascinating and great and and kind of subversive, honestly, spe- especially for an NBC for a network show that there is such a. And it really it starts to percolate in the episode that was on last night and continues, honestly. We're, there were more and more overt references to the idea that the connection between these two guys is kind of hot. <laughs> <laughs> that actually relates to one of the examples that I was able to pull up about the writing. Um, this was in the, the moment when they finally reunite in Italy in front of La Primavera, and Hannibal says... If I saw you every day forever, Will, I would remember this time. And it's actually both of the next sentences that Will says to him. Uh, the first one is, strange seeing you here in front of me. And then 
been staring at after images of you in places you haven't been in years. So again, interesting beginning right there with the, the verbs or the adjectives, but yeah, that, that aspect of the show I think has evolved into my absolute favorite, the handling of that relationship and how multifaceted it is and how it doesn't come down hard on anything. Like, are they lovers? Are they just friends? Are they mortal enemies? It's, it's so complicated and beautiful that it's really kind of elevated the the bar for not not even necessarily same sex uh, relationships on TV, but just relationships between characters in serialized television. Yeah, Hannibal's not big on labels. Uh, certainly the character, but I would also say the show, and I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's definitely unresolved enough to be endlessly kind of interesting. You know, I think, I mean, if, if, for, if I were left to my own devices, I would definitely have those characters kiss. Um, <laughs> Brian probably very wisely would draw the line there because he doesn't want to get that specific with it, you know? All right. Well, um, that kind of covered the topics, that, uh, the bigger ones that we wanted to talk about. So we'll move right along then to uh, the devil in the details, uh, the first of the recurring segments uh, for this week, where we point out just little things that stood out to us. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be little. And this could also cover things that we just haven't talked about uh, in this episode yet. I liked that we saw Francis. This is a, being a product of, you know, the, the Internet generation that we saw Francis's background on his desktop and it's just this really ominous tree out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> see i just, i have that he's he's a mac he's not a pc is one of my <laughs> right i i mean that i mean that detail was a detail that was like new to me you know when i saw it in um and it wasn't even in dailies because you know that's just something that's put in vfx later um i so i can't specifically to what that means unfortunately <laughs> i think a lot of these are just there for fun which is another reason why it, just the depth of it is so great um but little things anything that stood out to you don when you were watching it um well let's see as i said i love um the the stylization of the light on the tiger's fur in that scene um because it, it was it was really important to us, again, that we it was just sort of like it, it needed to seem extra vivid and extra surreal in a way. Um, I loved that. Um, let's see what else. You know, of course, the scene with Neil and Bedelia and our, you know, finally seeing the ultimate, just how that all worked, I think, is really terrifying and kind of revolting in exactly the right way. You know, one of the things I wrote in, in the script when he's doing the, in the, in the teaser, when he breaks into uh, Hannibal's office and he goes to the phone junction, we see him, you know, doing something to it. And then we plunge into what I described as the kind of matrixy world of electronic junctions and highways and um so it was kind of fun to see that visualized after imagining it that and that that was very a very specific detail from the script and, it, and it's so fun to to see how that ends up looking because they all it's just the show is always so beautifully visualized and goes beyond any expectation that we have 
Oh, let's see. Uh, the I don't know. If there, we, we always like to drop in little movie references, um, and you know, some people get them, some people don't. We have uh, a little nod to the movie Heather's. I wonder if you caught that. If not, I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> I still, I still haven't seen Heather's. <laughs> um, I haven't either. Yeah. It's oh okay. Well, then you wouldn't catch that. But there, it's when um, Neil falls on the glass table and shatters it. That was it's, we thought of the corn nuts moment. If you see Heather's, you'll know why it's the corn nuts moment. Um, and dress to kill. We 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 love dress to kill at Hannibal and De Palma in general. Um, so uh, when when Will and Francis encounter one another in the elevator, when when Hannah, when uh, Will is outside the elevator and there's a, a shot, a POV, just sort of slow gliding shot moving toward the elevator and we can just see his shoe. We, the, the camera kind of arcs in a certain way to reveal the shoe so Will perceives that someone's in there. That is a direct reference from Dress to Kill. That um, Anyway, some people might find interesting. What else? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can jump in uh, with a couple little moments that I that I, I actually, most of mine are related to the scoring, so I'll talk about them in a moment when we get to the scoring segment. But um, uh, for me, there are two little moments of performance that I thought were really, like, the most relatable these characters have been. So when Reba, when Dollar High just, like, walks away being uh, all emo for a second, and, and she's like, um, where, where are you? Uh, I thought that was super relatable and funny. And then uh, when Dollar Hyde is driving and he just like rubs his eyes because he's so because he's been driving all night and he's so tired for like mm-hmm. a moment. He was me when I'm driving back from a gig halfway across the state, like one in the morning. It was just instantly relatable. And then as soon as he finishes rubbing his eyes, he's back to that really focused like stare and creepy again. But it's just such like a little touch of relatability um right. people had a late night drive like that oh yeah absolutely and i think you know the actors all bring these like little moments like that of that that allow this incredibly operatic show to touch the ground now and then which is important you know to keep it um grounded in in a kind of behavioral human experience and a couple other ones that i had were uh, the, the breaking of the martini glass, of course, reminded me a lot of the breaking of the teacups that we've seen in past episodes. Uh, again, comparing the characters and that relationship to the Will and Hannibal relationship. Uh, and I love Bedelia's outfit and her scene with Will that was just all the way up to her neck so that you couldn't see any of the skin there. Right. And and also, of course, it's important there just to, to keep the, the viewer oriented in time that her outfit when she's with Neil is in, you know, completely different and in the, kind of in the opposite direction and saying the opposite thing in a way. All right. Well, with that, uh, we're going to go ahead and let uh, Don go. And again, thank him so much for making the time to talk with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it and had a lot of fun. And you guys, as I said, you guys are, it's, it's great to, to hear people um, who, pick up on all the details and appreciate the show so much. You know, it's been obviously disappointing for all of us that the show was canceled after working on something for so long and everyone's so passionate about it. And then it comes out and it's like, eh, nobody cares. 
<laughs> you know, nobody's watching it. It's just, it's just very frustrating. So it's, it is a real treat to talk to you guys and um, hear how much you like it. So thank you very much. Uh, is there anything, uh, upcoming projects that you're working on that you want to let listeners know about? Sure. Um, I'm working on the new Chucky movie, writing that now, which um, I'll direct, as I directed the last two as well. So I'm going to do that. And I have a couple of other... I, I, I had such a great experience working on Hannibal. I, I really would love to work in television more, so I'm exploring that as well and hopefully have some irons in the fire there. Nothing, nothing substantial enough yet that I can talk about, but keep your fingers crossed for me because... I'd love to do more of it. I really enjoyed it. And of course, uh, we're all hoping that another network will find a home for Hannibal and that you'll be back for the next season and we can talk to you again. I, I would love that. I hope so. I, you know, it's, I, I, it doesn't look like it's going to be immediate, certainly, but I like to think that, you know, when you see like the new version of Heroes is coming out now, a new version of the X-Files, um, I definitely think there's, you know, legitimate reason to hope that we haven't seen the last of these characters um, as, you know, envisioned through the Brian Fuller prism, which has been so great. All right. Kate and I will be back in just a moment to wrap up the discussion for this episode. But thank you once again to Don Mancini. All right. And we are back and we'll do a reverse order of the recurring segments this week. So go ahead and take us away with Kate's classical corner what can you tell us about the scoring and soundtrack in and the woman clothed in sun well as we already mentioned earlier in the podcast there is one classical piece featured in this episode and that's the arabesque number one by Debussy. it's one of the first pieces that he composed for piano i believe and i would have assumed that reba picked it but as i learned <laughs> it was actually dollarhide so that's very interesting it's an incredibly lush and beautiful piece um, it's it's an impressionistic piece. It's one of the early impressionistic pieces, which ties very well with um, different elements of of this of this season, which uh, Don mentioned earlier, and you know I think are pretty clear at this point. But also it it, it in connecting Reba and the Reba and Dollarhide relationship with the arabesque that bleeds into the scoring in a way they'll talk about it in a little bit. But, you know, earlier this season, we also had the WC prelude to the afternoon of a fawn um, in Ant Antipasto when we had the, uh, the shots of the, or the scenes with Gideon. Um, the first two scenes with Gideon had Debussy, and then the third one had Ravel, who is another impress a French impressionistic composer. So uh, it, it was a really interesting connection to that, which I wouldn't have normally thought. And I don't know that that's intentional, but normally with with Dollarhide, with the dragon composition we've gotten for him, it's been very percussive with that full string um, section, sort of some, some screaming or very aggressive strings at some times and at other times very uh, just a thick kind of sound underneath the percussion, sort of supporting the percussion. And so to, to contrast that with this just gorgeous uh, melody in, in the piano um, works very well to, again, show the, the contrast and the duality with the dragon and the woman. Um, absolutely gorgeous piece. It also, if you want to read into more with Dollarhide, of course, the, the main melody that people will know that da, 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 the triplets. Of course, at the same time, you have triplets in the, in the right hand, you have duples in the left. And so you have a three with on top of a two. So these two different rhythms trying to line up 
and it makes for an absolutely absolutely gorgeous sound um but again you could say that there's a struggle between those two and from that conflict between those two different rhythms you get this really lovely effect so that could be these two different parts of Dollarhide struggling against each other, or maybe you have this really positive, beautiful influence of the flowing triplets, which is finding beauty and bringing the left hand, the simple or the more straightforward duple rhythm in the left hand, uh, bringing complexity and beauty to it and sort of leading it towards a more impressionistic feeling as opposed to a more straightforward um, just one and two and feeling. So that that's what I have for the classical piece. There's a lot in the scoring. And so I'm going to, again, pare down a little bit and people can go to soundonsite.org to read my full write-up of the score for this episode. But um, uh, tying in with the Debussy, the scene that we get um, with the tiger is just, has this really lovely, again, very impressionistic, very romantic feel in the scoring um as she's as reba's experiencing the tiger and then uh as she reaches down towards the tooth the the tension builds in the score because when we had our scene with reba and dollarhide last week i i had a very hard time enjoying it because the scoring was so tense and so stressful for me but in this one scene with the tiger Right, so let's just he just lets you enjoy it and really feel the beauty of that scene and the the only time that that really changes is when she reaches down towards the tiger's mouth. Then we get tension. Then we get a little bit of of stress. At least I I did. Um, and then when it when she pulls her hand back, uh, the 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 that element goes away. And again, you can enjoy the scene. Um, and there's the there's beauty and there's tension at the same time. So it's finding beauty with this tension underneath as opposed to, you know, mostly tension with just a little bit of melody that we got last week. Um, there's also a bit of a heartbeat rhythm underneath um, at, at the, towards the end of that sequence as she's listening to the, the tiger breathe. Um, and uh, yeah, gorgeous. So there's, there's piano there. I think there's some harp, there's some guitar at a certain point. Uh, it's, it's very, it's very lovely. We, um, we get <laughs> when, when when he when Dollarhide asks her if she wants to go, you know, and and feel the tiger, there's a, a major seventh in the piano, which is not at all ominous, a super dissonant interval. Um, but I'm glad that it worked out. Uh, so that that was a nice little uh, question mark that then resolved in a really beautiful way. Um, when we have all this, uh, the scene at the end, the scenes with. Um, Dollar Hyde, where he he's freaking out about the dragon, and uh, you know, is she safe? If he, you know, it seems like as he ushers her out of the house, he's not. He's like looking around furtively, like he doesn't trust the space um, to to not harm her um, or himself to not become the dragon while she's there and and strike out. And that is reflected in the score, uh, which is really really interesting. It's just there's um. We get more of that sound, that percussive sound that we got in the Great Red Dragon at the beginning when he was working out. Uh, and so it's just such a distinct contrast between the sound that we are getting as they're having sex, as they're, you know, as he's taking her to, to experience the tiger. It's a very different sound. But what I thought was also very interesting about that, when we have uh, Dollarhide at the, in the you know, <laughs> destroying that painting by Blake uh, later and Will looking for him we get a we get 
that same kind of red dragon percussion it's it's a very woody kind of sounding percussion um but i thought it was interesting that it's nowhere near as oppressive at least to me as the the heavy percussion scoring we were getting in season two and it, it feels like it's sort of it's not and again even it's not as heavy or as dense as the percussion scoring we were getting in great red dragon it's like now he's more conflicted he's not as committed because he's got this 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 relationship with Reba that is pulling at him as well. Um, so I just thought it was interesting that there's this dramatic moment is, is Will going to catch the dragon, which I mean, we know he's not cause it's a TV show, but, um, but I thought it was interesting that the, the percussion was so present and so uh, forward in the score and in high in the mix, but it wasn't the same kind of uh, really bombastic percussion. It was a little lighter, a little um, thinner percussion while still again, very, very present. Um, and I wonder how long that will last. <laughs> I have a feeling that might change by the time we get to the finale. But for now, I thought that was that was interesting. And I look forward to what other listeners think about that, uh, hearing from them. Uh, please post a comment over at soundonsite.org uh, when you hear this. Other interesting things about the percussion or the, the, the scoring, not just the percussion <laughs> in this episode. Uh, there's a fun little moment when... Hannibal is calling he's like unscrewing the uh the receiver and putting the gum in there uh, there's like a there's a drum roll that comes in and it's almost like uh and he screws it back on and then you can hear that it goes to operator so it's like a drum roll and like ta-da for my next trick this is how I contact the outside world because I'm Hannibal Lecter and can do stuff um so I thought that was just a funny little thing um if it was intentional who knows um other really, you know, there's a lot of atmospheric uh, scoring in, in the opening scene uh, throughout the episode, but specifically in the opening scene, it almost feels like at one point um, you can feel like it feels like the breath of the dragon as uh, Dollarhide is calling Hannibal and like waiting to talk to him, uh, which I thought was interesting. The, the piano comes in in the will scenes. Um, in an interesting, fun way. And of course, having the piano for Reba as like this this positive influence in, in Dollarhide's life, again, for me, ties it to the positive influence, theoretically, of Will versus Hannibal. Because um, of course, the piano is very much Will's, Will's instrument. Um, we get a perfect fourth in the piano as as the mar as Dollarhide drops the martini glass. We get this, like, after that, we get this steady, measured pulse of a of a perfect fourth, um, which sort of takes over for the the clarinet and the guitar that we got before that, um, and I thought that was interesting, that maybe them fitting together as a perfect, you know, in that perfect moment, um, yeah, and or being in unison, they're you know syncing up. Um, we also had some like a rattle of of the teeth or the groan of the dragon when Dollarhide wakes up. We get some sustained strings again, the string sections in the, the sequence with Bedelia and Will kind of going back and forth. Um, and we also get the sustain, sustained pitches with, with a piano line for that as well, like I was saying earlier. And then in the last the last sequence, there's, there's this high pitch that is sung that I couldn't place, but I swear has popped up in the score previously. That's at the beginning when Dollarhide is like going into the museum. Um, I can't place where it's from. So maybe one of our sharp-eared listeners, like Christine, if you notice where that's from, 
drop me a line let me know because i swear it's been on the show before but i can't i can't quite place it it definitely has yeah i recognize it i don't remember where it was from though yeah yeah and um the other thing that that the last thing i have that that was kind of fun um the strings are sliding up and down when will is looking for trying to catch up with him with dollar hide and um they end up sliding down and uh oh actually no they, they're sliding down i'm sorry I'm th i'm thinking of earlier in the episode when Hannibal is getting Will's number. The pitches slide down this, as soon as it becomes clear that he's gonna get uh, what was her name, Denise, uh, to to help him out. Uh, the the violin. There's like this inevitability of like this ah oh, as the the strings come down and they actually settle on a G. So he's like when he's look under G, the strings come down and settle actually on the G. So that's a fun little detail there as well. So that is. I'm sure I'll have more over at Sound on Sight once I finish writing up my post for that. But hopefully by the time you guys are hearing this, you can go over there and see anything that I missed. You said that you noticed that moment of that high pitch. Were there other elements of the scoring that stood out to you? Just in the opening sequence, uh, this is while he's doing whatever hacking he's doing on that breaker uh, before going into Hannibal's office. But it, there, there's definitely like certain patterns and certain genres of stories and it felt like very spy-y like that whole sequence to me before he gets onto the phone just felt a lot like philip and elizabeth jennings doing their thing yeah no i i agree with that it, it did a good job of um giving you a bit of a heist feel yeah and um the the rhythms because and for me what i would say you're keying into is that there's these different rhythms going on but unlike with the dragon uh, where those rhythms, they're at different tempos and they don't necessarily all line up um, very intentionally. Here, the, there's different rhythms in the percussion and in the piano and the electric guitar, but they all are lock into place. They're not the, they're not matching each other, but they are they are not struggling against each other. They're working in concert, so that gives it that feel of a plan coming together, of pieces falling into place to make something happen. All right. Well, that will take us to the end of this week's discussion. And once again, thank you. A special thanks to Don Mancini for coming on and talking with us. Uh, Kate, anything going on online that you would like to let listeners know about? Well, you can find me at uh, at the Televerse on Twitter and talk to me there. I love talking with you guys and with with about uh, Hannibal with all the fanables, but also about the rest of TV. The Televerse is the weekly TV podcast I co-host over at Sound on Sight. Um, covering the rest of tv so check that out every tuesday and wednesday there and uh you can also find my hannibal reviews that sound on site and yeah just i if anybody wants to talk for example right now i just finished i just caught up with steven universe and it's exploded my brain if you want to talk steven universe come hit me up on twitter because my brain's exploded by its awesomeness um but yeah that's i think that's probably the the best way to get, to get in touch always there's always fun stuff happening over over there it's not on site always uh monthly themes that kind of thing so be on the lookout for that you can find my weekly reviews of hannibal of course over at tvovermind.com and that's it for this week kate and i'll be back next week to talk about season three episode 11 and the beast from the sea until then thank you listeners this has been another episode of this is our design